ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Andy Kamenetsky, Brian Kamenetsky. Our guest is one of the leading television critics in America. He's considered by many to be the godfather of recap culture. Slate praised him as having changed the nature of television criticism. His work can be found on uprocks.com, and his previous books include TV, The Book, and The Revolution Was Televised, which I enjoyed a lot. In his new book, Breaking Bad 101, The Complete Critical Companion, he, rev- he revisits some of his original reviews of Breaking Bad episodes with a fresh perspective, as well as providing new essays and accompanying interviews with folks like Brian Cranston and Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan. Alan Sevenwall joining us. Alan, how are you? It's my pleasure. Um, I guess to begin, you've explored the impact of Breaking Bad on uh, TV culture, and in particular the rise of the antihero lead uh, during a section of The Revolution Was Televised. What prompted you to dive even further into the show with a different book? What I hear all the time from people when I write recaps of an entire series, and particularly a great one like this, is, man, I wish I had all of your pieces in one place. I want to go back and rewatch Breaking Bad or The Wire or Sopranos or whatever, and it would be nice to just have them all like you know polished up in a book to look at. And so it was fun to do both as an excuse to, to give the people the collection they wanted, but also to go back and rewrite a lot of what I had done online about the shows over, over the years because, you know, I had very mixed feelings about Breaking Bad when it debuted, and I don't feel that way at all anymore. And so it was nice to be able to finally do justice to the first season now that I could fully appreciate it, for instance. What was the experience, though, of, of reliving a show like Breaking Bad through recaps like? Because obviously... You know, there are no spoilers in in weekly recaps because you haven't seen what's coming. Um, But going back, obviously, now you know what the rest of the plot was like um, after putting it together. Well, and a lot of the recaps I found in going back and looking at them were, uh, you know, gee, I wonder what's going to happen now. I can't wait to find out. And a lot of speculation and theorizing, almost all of which was completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And so... I ripped all of that out of the recaps, and so some of them have been rewritten entirely from scratch. Some of them just I had to take out the speculation and do more analysis of what's actually in the episode. And it's still written in a way that if you've never seen the show before and are going to binge it for the first time, you can read the book safely without being spoiled. But it definitely it forced me to look more at just what's happening now and worry less about what's coming because I already know that. What's it like, too, also, just from the pure perspective of a writer to go back through your old writing? Because I, I know as as a writer, at times you look at something like four or five years later and you're like, I still Andy, love it. Andy's in particular because his his writing is not very good. Right. There's yeah. other times I look at my writing and I'm like, I, lo- I, I love going I can't back and looking at my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my recaps, it was it was nice to see that they needed almost no work. It's like this is a perfect thing right here. I'll just, you know, there's a typo and I'll fix that. And some of them I was, I looked at it and thought, God, this has been on the internet for 10 years and no one has ever said anything about it. I can't, I'm embarrassed. So it was nice to have an excuse to really like clean it up, polish it, in some cases start over. Uh, I wrote one recap of the show while high on painkillers and IV antibiotics because my appendix had ruptured earlier in the day. Uh, and so I was able to write a brand new recap as opposed to the gibberish one I insisted on doing for my hospital bed uh, while my wife objected. Oh, still, you're a gamer there. <laughs> that's impressive. That's that's my version of the Michael Jordan flu game, I guess. <laughs> he, he did better than I did. Um, can you put, Alan, can you put into context the, the debut and that, that first season of Breaking Bad, you know, putting that into context, what was going on in television at the time? Where was AMC? Where was cable programming? 
versus more traditional networks and all of that? It was an interesting moment because we had had this period going back to when The Sopranos debuted in 1999 where it seemed television was really changing and it was making room for all these incredible kinds of shows that no one ever would have expected to see on TV. And then The Sopranos ended and The Wire ended and a few of those other shows from the turn of the millennium uh, went away. And it seemed like, hmm, maybe this was just a fluke. And HBO didn't seem to really know what they were doing at that point. And, you know, it's like, okay, this was just a historical anomaly. It was the Wild West, and things are going to go back to the way that they always were. And then AMC comes in, and they did Mad Men, and then they do Breaking Bad back-to-back with Mad Men. Uh, Both shows were developed around the same time. And suddenly it it went from, oh, this is an unusual thing, and we may never see its like again, to, oh, this is just what TV is now. It's interesting, too, the the timing of Breaking Bad when when it debuted. It 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 debuted and then sort of came into its own before Twitter and social media really took off or, you know, much less before it became the echo chamber that it's now. And I've heard showrunners acknowledge how this type of immediate and amplified feedback, it can't help but influence you or influence the writers as they lay out seasons. And Breaking Bad, I think, you know, was lucky to escape some of this uh, to some degree. But you realize shows don't really have the luxury of sort of existing within themselves anymore. It's hard, and I think that often the best shows are the ones made by people who are not um, focused on that feedback. The, the next book I'm working on is one about The Sopranos, and I've been doing a lot of interviews with David Chase, and he is someone who reads the feedback and doesn't care and will just sort of go off and do his own thing. And I think that mostly served that show well. I think Vince Gilligan is you know, sort of uh, a more easygoing, happy, friendly guy, but I think he also ultimately trusts his own instincts more than what he sees from everybody else. So uh, I definitely it was easier for him to do that before Twitter became a big thing. But there was still a lot of bad fandom going on in Breaking Bad over the run of the show, all the people who hated Skyler, et cetera, and he was able to, to tune that out and still do what he did. Uh, it's interesting, though, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at least in, in, in going back and, and thinking about it, Mad Men, though, seemed to be – like a thing, like a you know, a critically adored and you know, a, a much more of a phenomenon early than Breaking Bad was. If 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 that had if this the same pairing of shows had come out in 2015 instead of 2007 2008, do you think the, the way that this would have played out in terms of the space that Breaking Bad had to breathe and grow? Do you think it would have been different? I don't know. In part, it's hard to say. In part, because so much of what's on TV right now is explicitly influenced by Breaking Bad more right. than it is by Mad Men. You just see a lot of imitators of that show and a lot of you know Walter White wannabes like Jason Bateman on Ozark. But I also think Mad Men was a much more fully formed show when it started. It's in going back and writing this book, I rewatched all of Breaking Bad season one, and I liked it a lot more than I did the first time. But it's still a show figuring itself out in a lot of ways. And it's not polished, and it's not what it became later. Where, you know, like season three, season four, and then the, the end of season five are arguably the peaks of Breaking Bad, whereas you can look at Mad Men, and Mad Men was already brilliant from minute one. So I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily a surprise or a shock that it took that show a little bit longer to get the amount of critical consensus that it had. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with with Breaking Bad and rewatching it. It's discussed in the book is how this scrambling to make it work ethos that the characters experience as you know they're they're figuring out a lot of this as they go. It's mirrored a lot by several behind the scenes issues with Breaking Bad, whether you're talking about the writer strike or 
the actor playing Tuco suddenly becoming unavailable. And necessity ended up dictating some of these interesting paths for Breaking Bad. And I guess in retrospect, how much do you think the success of Breaking Bad is ultimately owed to these unusual circumstances? It's not just the unusual circumstances. It's the fact that Gilligan and the other writers were really good at improvisational plotting. You know, there's only a few times in the run of the show where they really looked very far ahead and said, we're going to build to this moment. And a lot of those don't, re- don't work as well as the stuff that they had to think up after they'd written themselves into a corner. Can you, you give know? an example? Uh, the, the, way, the plane crash in season two, they knew going into season two, all right, we're going to tease this plane crash and build to this plane crash, and the whole season is going to wind up being about that. And that's not one of the more beloved plot elements of the show. I remember both at the time and later talking about it. People felt a little underwhelmed by it. And then you have a lot of other situations where they came up with an idea, not really, suring ha- not really sure how they were going to get out of it, and figured it out later. And, you know, that wor- wound up working out beautifully. Like, they didn't really know how the whole Walt versus Gus spring war of season four was going to resolve other than obviously Walt was going to win, but they had no idea how, and they were just making it up as they went along, and that's arguably the most beloved season of the show. Does that contribute, I think, to the to the ability of that show to 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 not just remain fresh, but actually build and get better in a way that certain shows are unable to? I mean, I think Mad Men had sort of a lull a little bit, you know, in, in its later seasons before it wrapped up. Because nobody really knew like how long they had to sustain the story, as opposed to what you're talk- describing with Mad Men or Breaking Bad, which is, well, they don't know what the story is, so it's not like you're trying to stretch anything out. I think that's part of it, but I think it's also like Breaking Bad was building to an end point. It's, you know, we're going to take Mr. Chips, we're going to turn him into Scarface, and so they did that. So Mad Men could have ended at a whole bunch of different points, and it still would have been a satisfying show, mm-hmm. and they just kind of kept going, and as a result... To some people, it could feel repetitive after a while. You know, oh, Don's got another mistress. Don's making the same mistake he's made six times before. That kind of thing, where there's a very clear and definitive rise and fall arc for Walter White. Uh, and there were, there were a couple times where the show might have ended a little bit earlier. It might have ended after season four, after he defeats Gus, because there was a long sort of stalemate between the studio and AMC about terms to keep it going. And I don't know that that would have been as satisfying as what they wound up ultimately doing. But because they were able to build towards this thing, it feels like a more complete and compact story than Mad Men or Sopranos or some of these other shows do. You you talk a lot in the book, Alan, about how Breaking Bad is structured using the in-between moments. Um, That's the phrasing you use. Can you explain to people what you mean by that and, and also why this was so crucial and unique to Breaking Bad? All right, so the, at the end of the first episode of the show, Walt appears to kill the two drug dealers who are trying to kill him and Jesse. And then they, they spend the whole next two episodes trying to get rid of these bodies, or in one case, having to actually kill the guy who wasn't quite dead yet. And I remember watching that back in 2008, thinking, what are they doing? You know, the, the pilot, all these things happened, and now we're devoting two episodes to corpse disposal. This makes no sense to me. I, I don't get it. I don't like it. I just get back to the story. When, in fact, that was the story. It's, you know, Gilligan is the one who said in between moments to me, and the idea is we've seen so many gangster stories over the years and so many drug dealer stories, and they all have these very familiar beats, and they kind of move through them very quickly. So if this was a movie or even another TV show – Crazy Aiden and Emilio, they would have died at the end of the pilot. There would have been 
maybe a two-minute scene in the next episode or even just a line of Jesse saying, man, that was so disgusting when we had to melt them in acid, and that would have been it. <laughs> not and here. instead, Breaking Bad slows down and shows you them having to do it and the, the logistics of it and the emotional challenge of him having to kill Crazy 8 and what that does to him. And because we're seeing everything in tiny, tiny detail, it's incredibly powerful. And then in later seasons, they could bring back the acid and deal with that in about five seconds. But it hits a lot harder because you've seen them spend two episodes on it. Yeah, one, one of the things that I really love about Breaking Bad, and the only show that I've ever seen do this as often and as well, is The Shield is how yes. deeply it examines the consequences of choice and how one choice can create this ripple effect of subsequent choices and these choices build on each other and you end up having to make more bad choices to paper yeah. over other bad choices. And, and those, those in-between moments, like, like you mentioned, they really deeply examine you know, what goes into making bad choices. It's very easy to celebrate you know, the career of Walter White, and a lot of the fans do it anyway, you know, even years later. But having to watch the, like, the minute consequences of everything he does, I think, really drives home all of the sort of evil he's bringing into the world of the people around him. What do you think is, is the lasting impact of that character? Um, a, it's like, like I said, everyone else in television, and to an extent the movies, is trying to copy him. He is one of the great sort of criminals of all time he's up there with the actual scarface with i i would argue with the godfather with a number of others you know it's hard to go anywhere in a big city without seeing some guy wearing a heisenberg t-shirt you know halloween's coming up next week i'm sure going to be seeing a lot of guys in hats and sunglasses with goatees um so he's definitely he's a pop culture icon it's a great show it's a frequently imitated show um and also it and AMC, it and Mad Men combined to not only put AMC on the map, but to just sort of kick off this period in TV where we're in now, because AMC was nothing. No one cared about AMC. They were the second-rate classic movie channel, and then they do these two consecutive shows, and all of a sudden they are you know, a titan in the industry, and so now every other channel and streaming service has come out, and they're saying, we want to do our own Mad Men, we want to do our own Breaking Bad, and as a result, you have, you know... 500 scripted television shows airing in a particular year it's it's ridiculous and then and then sort of the extension of that question is because you know the, those in-between moments that we talked about and you know, we see it in better call saul which is obviously of the same family but you know 17 minute sequences with mike ermintrout where he doesn't speak but you see him doing all these amazing things the when die hard came out everything became die hard on a plane die hard on a bus die hard on a can, do you think people will have the guts to try to do, and, and can they successfully do Breaking Bad in a blank, which would include having the the guts or a different part of your body to go 17 minutes with nobody talking and, and watching somebody put this plan into action? The thing is, I feel like a lot of people are trying. They're just not doing it well. A lot of these shows, especially the Netflix dramas, are really... They've clearly all watched and enjoyed Breaking Bad and said, all right, we're going to tell stories slower, and you know, that's what people like. And what they don't understand is that what Breaking Bad did, Bad did was not just moving slower, but using the slowness to fill in all these details. 
you know, a lot happens in these episodes where not, very little seems to be happening in terms of our understanding of the characters, in terms of just the emotional weight that's falling on them with each decision, you know, sometimes just in terms of the comedy and what that tells us about each of them. And a lot of these other shows just feel like they're slow for the sake of being slow. You know, when I watch Mike Ehrmantraut, you know, spend 17 minutes taking apart a car, it's fun, you know, both because it's well-made at a level of execution that a lot of other shows don't aspire to, but also because it reaffirms everything we know about Mike Ehrmantraut, that he's a guy who would take this much time to be absolutely 100% sure right. that there's not a bug in his car. Um, how much of this, though, is us, though, Alan? Because I, I think we always, we liked, we like to be the kind of people who appreciate sequences like that but if you look at some of the reaction particularly in the last couple seasons of game of thrones whenever they do try to stop and have these uh moments of dialogue or detail or whatever a lot of the reaction is god damn it more dragons <laughs> where are my dragons yeah and that's that's always tough and i sometimes have that reaction too with shows you know stranger things uh, two is coming out on netflix and there's one character who's sort of held separately in a much slower moving subplot and I watched that and got very impatient. Said, no, 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 put them back with everybody else. Get back to that thing you already did. So I can have that response, too. I, I think it ultimately comes down to how well you do it. And I don't think that some of those slower things are, are what Game of Thrones specializes in, mm -hmm. which is why there's so much of a demand for the dragons or someone getting their head cut off, um, as opposed to on Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. You understand, no, this is, these are masters at this particular style of storytelling. Let's let them do it. Speaking of Better Call Saul, I, I guess, A, what do you think of the show? And also, well, answer that part because the second part is dependent <laughs> on your actual answer. I'm surprised by how much I love Better Call Saul. I wanted no part of it when they announced it. I thought, you know, leave a, leave a great thing well enough alone. It's you don't want, you can't improve on Breaking Bad, so just stop it there. And on top of that, I liked Saul as sort of a little, you know, accent you know, to the dish. I didn't think he was remotely interesting enough as a character to be able to carry a show. I certainly didn't expect Bob Odenkirk to be this great of a dramatic actor that he's turned out to be. It's really good, and I hear sometimes from people who say, I almost like it better than Breaking Bad. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I understand where they're coming from, and the fact that you can have that thought, given how great Breaking Bad is, is incredible. Okay, here comes the second part of the question, because you answered uh, the first part the way I hoped you would. Um, I completely agree. I, I, it's a great show. It's a phenomenal show. And I, I've put this out on Twitter before, um, you know, gauging people's reactions, and, and it's been very split everywhere from that's brilliant to you're an idiot. But I feel like break, Breaking Bad is is the better show. I mean, it's it's one of the most groundbreaking, amazing shows in TV history. But Better Call Saul, when you consider all the obstacles it was up against and how many different ways it could fail and maybe in some ways should have failed, I think you can make the argument Better Call Saul is the more impressive show. It's the higher degree of difficulty because it comes with expectations. There were no expectations on Breaking Bad. No one knew what to think of it. Again, it was on this obscure channel that nobody was watching it debuted on the night of the nfc champion nfc championship game where the giants were playing the packers in like the frozen lambeau field so nobody watched it so it was able to develop and grow in complete obscurity and then later it became this phenomenon where people said oh you've got to binge and catch up with it and it was a real hit by the end this spin comes with the expectations of being the spin-off of breaking bad 
that's hard. And they didn't, you know, they had to take a comedic actor and turn him into a dramatic leading man. They weren't quite sure exactly what the tone of the show was going to be. And yet it has turned out to be something really special. What is the knack they have, Alan, in casting? You talked about, you know, Bob Odenkirk and, and transforming in there, but they also surround Michael that McKean show. Is with, very Michael McKean type. He is, but but he's a phenomenal sure. actor. And so, you know, and Cranston Brian, was, Cranston was against type, but as we all know now, is a phenomenal actor. Um, you know, they had the foresight, as you explained in the book, to not kill uh, Aaron, J- Paul. Aaron Paul, not kill Jesse off in, in season one because they recognized what they had there as a, as a character and an actor. What is the knack that Vince Gilligan has in, fi- in identifying talents, whether it's you know higher profile guys that we've seen before or obscure people like you mentioned, uh, Hank's partner that they just sort of found in New Mexico to save costs in season one? I, part of it is a credit to the casting people on that show, and part of it is a credit to the casting people on the X-Files. Cranston did an X-Files episode. Mm-hmm. McKean did several X-Files episodes. So there's a, a bunch of guys that Gilligan had worked with before and thought, all right, they're really good. I'm going to bring them back when I can. But certainly, like, there's, you've got to be able to see it, and you've got to be able to trust it. And Jesse could have died, like, three or four episodes in, and it still would have been a great show because it would have had Cranston, but you've got to trust what your eyes are telling you. And so they they saw it and they knew it and it's a better show as a result of that. What would have been what would have been different about the show if they'd actually killed Jesse? Like it's it's hard Besides to think everything. about. Everything. Right. But I mean like how where, where would it have gone? I'm not sure because I don't like you need someone for Walt to interact with in the criminal phase of things. So they would have had to give him some kind of other partner or boss or something early on. Maybe, like, he immediately goes to work for Tuco. I, I don't know. And then that would have been a problem because the actor had to go back to the, to the closer. Uh, it would have been a very, very different show, but you need someone there. It's, it can't just be Brian Cranston mixing chemicals in silence. I think that works for a while, as we've seen with Mike Ehrmantraut, but you can't make it build an entire series out of that. But just think of all the memes we'd have lost, too. Like, yeah, science and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's very sad. It is also, too, I mean, it's a credit to what they wanted to do with the show, the the way they evolved Jesse, who in the beginning was, I think, sort of this callow character who was often there for comedic relief and to you know provide some function of plot. And by the end, you really realize how much heart he has and just how beautifully developed a character he was. And a lot of that goes to Aaron Paul, but just recognizing what you have in an actor and in a character and just building it out even better. No, that's that's very important, and it's Jesse is largely comic relief. Seems like an idiot early on, you know. He's he's dragging Walt as much as Walt is dragging him into this world. And by the time you even get to the start of season two, the show's sympathies seem to have shifted over to Jesse. And you're thinking, oh God, look at what Walt is doing to this guy who just wanted to sell a little bit of meth, you know, enough to you know be able to pay for video games and things like that. And now this is what his life has become. Um, Andy referred to you in the intro as the godfather of um, recap culture. And, and make no mistake, you have had people killed. Um, how has recap culture – don't shake your head at me. That's what godfathers do. Um, how has recap culture impacted television, you think? It's, it's a very different way of not only writing about television but just experiencing television, this idea that now – you can watch your favorite show, and when it's over, you don't just go on to another show or go on to, to doing something else. You can marinate in that show a lot longer. 
um, you know, by reading these recaps and then commenting on them and talking about them in that way. And I remember even you know, the very first recap I ever wrote, I was in college you know, trying to avoid studying for a test. And someone on a Usenet TV news group said, you know, hey, I missed last week's NYPD Blue. Can somebody tell me what happened so I'm ready for the next one? And as a way to procrastinate from studying, I wrote a recap. And I remember the response was overwhelmingly enthusiastic, not only from people like this first guy who hadn't seen the episode, but from a bunch of people who had seen it but just liked being reminded of all the things that happened in it. Like, you know, when you really care about a show, you want to do anything you can to extend the experience of it. And that's one of the reasons I wound up writing this book is, you know, whether or not you're going to actually sit down and rewatch Breaking Bad as soon as you buy it, you can still look through it and remind yourself of all of these great things that Vince Gilligan and Brian Cranston and Anna Gunn and everybody else did over the years. Yeah, how, speaking of just, you know, recap culture and what television has become now and, you know, this this peak TV era that we're living in, how much pressure is there for shows to compete in this? I mean, beyond competing for space and eyeballs, it feels like there's this expectation now that if you're not a groundbreaking show, you're basically wasting everybody's time. Like, it feels like a show like, say, Family Ties, which was just this really well-written, well-acted sitcom but conventional would just get mocked now. Like, people would think they don't have time for it. Eh, I don't know about that. I think that there's still plenty of conventional shows, some of which are very good. You know, one of, one of my favorite shows at the moment is Speechless, which is a pretty standard ABC family comedy. I just think it's executed incredibly well. So, you know, you, you can't spend your whole life watching these intense anti-hero dramas or you're going to go through life as a very angry person. So it's, it's nice that there's variety out there. And if you just look at the ratings, what something like Big Bang Theory does versus what something like The Americans does in terms of audience is pretty huge. But it, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a, a show like uh, Big Bang Theory is part of that zeitgeist, though. And it seems like everybody's paying attention to the zeitgeist at, right now as opposed to or are, or are we... Because we or kind we of live a, in this like pop culture world, and right, and and you were, do we just overestimate the influence that I, I that think it has? More the latter, honestly. I think it's the these are the kinds of shows critics write about because these are the kinds of shows critics write, and then these are the kinds of shows that pe- other people who enjoy that are drawn to. But you can't like argue with the numbers when I go out and I do public appearances to talk about this book or my work on Uproxx or anything else. I get asked all the time about th- shows I virtually never write about. You know, the other night someone wanted to know what's happening to Madam Secretary. Uh, this is us as one that comes up a lot these days, and that's about as middle of the road as it gets. I think it can be really well done at times, but that like you could have made that show in 1995 or 1985, and that's it wouldn't true. be that different. Um, what are the benefits, do you think, or or disadvantages to shows that, on Amazon and Netflix that drop? as a complete season in this sort of environment that we live in where if you are a a hit show that goes week to week, there's going to be a recap thing kind of built around you and conversation, all that. So for shows that just drop all at once, what, what, what's good and what's bad for them? Um, It's a little bit of a mix. I think too much is being done in terms of writing towards that. I think Breaking Bad winds up being an amazing binge series if you want to watch it that way. But it was not built to do that. It was built to be watched week to week. And these shows that are now assuming that everyone's going to watch all 10 or 13 episodes in the course of a few days, they wind up being these sort of big lumpy messes where they say, you know, we don't make episodes. The season is the episode. You know, it's, we're doing a 10-hour movie. That nobody wants to watch a 10-hour movie. 
but because the interface quickly jumps you to the next one and the next one, it's easy to feel lazy and keep going. But a lot of these shows could be much better if they took a cue from Breaking Bad and looked at the way in which each hour of Breaking Bad is distinct. It tells a story. It's got a theme. It's very clear. And the whole, the whole bigger arc flows together, but you can still enjoy each hour on its own, whether you're watching it a week apart, a year apart, or you know five minutes apart. So is there almost like a, at least the potential for a certain laziness in, in putting a, a, a season together like that all at once? No, there's very, it's very much laziness. Almost every Netflix show is at least two or three episodes longer than it has any reason being because they're just sort of sketching out this fuzzy you know, bag of plot, more or less. And then the last question uh, for you, Alan, uh, the process of doing this book and you know, going through old writing, stuff like that, what did you either learn or discover about Breaking Bad that you really didn't notice before? The most interesting thing was going back, not only realizing that I liked season one more than I did at the time, but just watching it knowing the full arc of Walter White, because you go into it the first time, and he's suburban dad, high school teacher, sort of, you know, it lives this kind of humiliating existence where he's got to work a second job at the car wash. He's dealing with financial trouble. He's sick. His wife is pregnant, and, oh, he has cancer. You know, what's he going to do? Uh, and so, and he's played by Brian Cranston from Malcolm in the Middle. So right. you like this guy. You want to like this guy. You want to see everything through the filter of Walter White is a family man doing this for his family. And after you've watched the whole series and you've seen the whole arc of him and you know what happens and you know what he admits in the end of it, he's a much darker character much earlier than you remember him being. Yeah. Like the signs of Heisenberg are there almost from minute one. It's really impressive. And that's one of the great, great things about the, the you know, uh, Mr. Chips, the Scarface thing is that is that debate is did, did doing what he did turn him into that guy or was he that guy and just needed the context to be able to be who he was? Who he was. And I think once you kind of get through the series, the answer is the latter. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I believe that's almost exactly how I described it is that Heisenberg was always there. He just needed the right combination of elements around him to have an excuse to come out. The book is Breaking Bad 101, The Complete Critical Companion. You can follow him on Twitter, at Sepinwall. Alan Sepinwall, thank you so much for the time. It's a really fun book. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. It. This, was, this was great to talk about with you guys. Thanks. Cool. Th Alan, thank you very much. I really sure, enjoyed no, I'm, it. I'm not shining you on. This is one of the, the best conversations I've had about this book or, or anything I've done. So thank you. Guys. Oh, wow. We really thank, appreciate thank that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Much appreciated. Right. So let me, let me know when it's live, and I, I will push it out places. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Here, take care. Bye. Bye.